I'm Austin. I'm Mike. And we are the test drivers. We put tech through its paces. So 2021 is finally starting to shape up with some fresh new tech. Now, Mike, have mm -hmm. you seen the brand new hot release of the Asus Zenfone 8? Yeah, I've seen it. <laughs> I've seen the videos. Um, this is interesting to me. So the Zenfones, like Asus have been do making their moves in phones for a while, right? They do the, the gaming phones, which people seem to really like. The ROG phone, if my memory serves me, always gets reviewed pretty well. Yeah. Again, like I, I'm still not really 100 percent sure how how many people buy these phones, like really what their market's like, but it's clearly enough for them to keep going. And then they've had the Zen phone, which they for the last few years, right? They've been doing weird and different things of it. And one of the things that seems to have stuck around is their they have the the camera mechanism that flips the back camera around to the front, right over the top. Yeah. yeah. So you always have the best camera, no matter what it is you want to do, and. They've got that this time, the Zenfone 8, but only in one of the models. And then they have a regular Zenfone 8 without the flipping thing. And I don't understand who that product is for because it's just a kind of regular Android phone at that point, right? Of which then there's so much competition. They, they, they're kind of losing out their special source there, I think. It's a regular phone except for one key feature, Mike. Okay. It's small. So it's actually roughly oh, Pixel 6 size, right? Or sorry, Pixel 5. I'm <clears throat> sorry, I'm a few months ahead here. Pixel 5 size. <laughs> Spoilers for the rest <laughs> of the episode. <laughs> so the idea is, yeah, so the, the, Zenflo the Zenfone 8 Flip. Oh, I, I like you calling it Zenflone, though. <laughs> That's good for me. Yeah. <laughs> Zenflone. The, so with the new phone, basically you have the two lines. So the flip has all the high-end features, including that flipping camera, which to be fair is really nice. Can I just say real quick, we've both done it now and it might not read to you, but in the UK, flipping, right, would be, you would say like... um could be used for like dam or dance. You're like, you know, if like you, if you really bumped into something, you'd be like, oh, I bumped into that darn door again, right? In the UK, we would say, I bumped into that flipping door again. <laughs> at least, at least where I grew up in London, that is a, that's like a, a phrase like that. So when we keep saying that flipping camera, it makes it sound like to my ears <laughs> that that camera, there's something wrong with it. Like, oh, that flipping camera, like it's really annoying you. So this is very fun for me to keep hearing right. say that. Let me let me rephrase. <laughs> no, that don't. rotating camera <laughs> segment of the phone. Oh, wait till uh, you hear what rotating means over here. Then <laughs> you wish oh, you no. never said it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe anything you say anymore. <laughs> so with the rotating camera module on the Zenfone 8 Flip, you've got the best of both worlds. It's it like just like on the Galaxy Z Flip. You can, you know, flip the camera around. Okay, I can't keep saying flip. Now you just completely ruined the word for me, Mike. You can use your rear-facing camera to take selfies, right, with a little external display on the flip, which I love. And that's one of the big advantages here, right? You don't have to use some subpar front-facing camera. The problem, though, is that obviously you have that motorized mechanism, right? Yep. Asus have done a really good job with that in the past. Unfortunately, that's actually not a feature on the regular Zenfone 8. But if you just 
pretend that that doesn't exist for a second. And you're just looking for a solid, compact Android smartphone. There's a lot going for it, right? So again, roughly the same size as the Pixel 5. They actually, we don't have a price, uh, at least here in the US, so it's gonna start at about 600 euros, which apparently they said that's between 600 and 800 US dollars. I don't know why that's such a wide gap, and it's coming to the US, but it's just somewhere in that range, so okay. So for context, the Pixel is MSRP about $700 here, usually on sale for a little less than that. 600 euros today is $732, but it never works out like that, right? The company would just choose their own amount of money. Exactly, and also there are different models with, I believe it's like six versus like eight gigs of RAM and different storage, you know, the the normal kind of stuff. So the Zenfone on paper actually looks to be just like the Pixel, around the same price, but a lot better in most scenarios, right? So it's got the full Snapdragon 888 as opposed to the somewhat weak uh, processor inside the Pixel 5. It also has a full 120 hertz OLED. And again, it's got that really nice form factor that I'm personally a big fan of, right? It's a lot more manageable. It's not some professional maximum edition of a particular phone. It is a regular human-sized hand. However, the Pixel, in my opinion, still has a couple of advantages, right? It has a better design, in my opinion. I really like the way that they've done, like the texture and the finish. Feels really nice. It also has a uh, actual fingerprint sensor as opposed to an in-display fingerprint sensor on the Zenfone. And the Zenfone, for some reason, does lose out on wireless charging. Now, I like the fact that the Zenfone 8 is so small, and Asus have done a lot of work over the last couple of years to like clean up their software and stuff. But my big concern, and it's the same thing I have with the iPhone, how many people are really buying these more compact phones? Because we've seen Sony do it, we've seen obviously Google do it with the Pixel, we've seen Apple do it with the iPhone, but have you heard of any of these phones selling well? Uh. I'm a little concerned. Well, I mean, that's even the you know one of the stories about the Mini, right? Is that it's expected to get one more version and they won't make one the year after. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because it seems to have not just, it just hasn't sold well for them. I don't know the reasoning for that. I mean, my, my personal feeling on it is like, there is a market for small phones. I don't think it is as big a market as we're led to believe. I think that, the the I think that the the small phone community is a very vocal minority. I think mm-hmm. so. It's it's something that you know people people that want it really want it. And when that kind of thing happens, typically it feels like it's more people than is actually going on. Because like, here's the thing, right? If if there isn't an, another iPhone Mini, like they, you know they do it one more time and they don't do it again. This is one of those things where, like, if it sold well, Apple would keep making it forever because mm-hmm. they're a company who likes to make money. So if it, <laughs> if they stop making this phone, it's because it's just not doing the sales numbers. And you, I mean, and I can understand the argument of like, why not just make you know as many phones as possible? Like, who's it hurting? But at a certain point, they're just going to make their decisions. They're not going to bring out five new iPhones every year, right? It's too many. Yeah, and like, I I would like to think that we're seeing a huge explosion in this market. It will probably be pared down. We're not going to have seven different compact phones. Mm-hmm. I hope, though, that we still have at least some variety because I am definitely part of that vocal minority where I love using smaller phones. I mm-hmm. love the Mini. I love the Flip. I really liked the Pixel 5. The Zenfone 8 seems like, even though it's maybe not quite as nice on the design side, it has so many other good features going for it. But I like to see this competition 
but I'm just a little concerned because we have so many of these compact phones out there. No one really seems to be buying them. It's just, it's sad. I just, I want to make sure at least we have some healthy small phone options out there for people who don't want to use the professional maximum edition of every seven and a half inch screen size of a mm. phone or whatever it is. It's big. It's like tablets, whatever. Imagine if phones could just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and then also smaller and smaller and smaller. That sounds like magic. What what kind of witchcraft do you have in mind here? It's called Samsung. Can you explain? So I you put this link in our document about this Samsung display thing. Mm-hmm. And no matter how many times I look at the images and read this article, <laughs> I can't work out how this thing works. So we talked about this uh, a few months ago, I think. So there were some rumors that Samsung were making a triple fold display, I guess would be the best mm-hmm. way to describe it. They call it the S foldable. So I guess the best way, and if, if you're listening right now, <laughs> is fold a foldable. So foldable. They'll call it the <laughs> ZS foldable. There you go. That's, that's there Samsung you go. naming in a nutshell. And it'll be number two for no reason. <laughs> so I would say if you are listening to the show, I would highly recommend checking out the show notes and actually seeing a picture of this because it is hard to dis- uh, describe. But essentially, it's like this, right? So when you fold it all the way out, it is a wide 7.2-inch display, right? So, I mean, we're definitely in the realm of like a, a small tablet. But then it folds twice in on itself, right? So basically, you have, it's like a, it's really actually like a Z sort of shape. So when you close it up, it looks like a standard phone, but it almost pops out like an accordion or something. So you essentially have two stages underneath. So it basically unfolds part of it, and then you have like the bottom part, which is like the base of the phone. But I can't work out how you would use it, right? Like, so you kind of got it where it fold, you fold it open, and then mm. you fold the right panel open again. Is that how it works? No, so I think there's no way to like get it like half open. Like either you have the full screen out or you have it all the way compact. The way is the way I understand oh, it. So okay. So okay, yeah. I think I can try and explain this in audio terms, right? The full size of the screen when you've got it fully open, it's like three regular phones next to each yes. other. Yes. And so you can either use it and it's fully open or you'd like close it up. And But see, the problem with this, though, it goes back to the same issues that like the Huawei phones have had. It means that there will be an exposed soft screen on the front, right? Yes. I don't think there's any way around that. Now, so to I, be fair... We've already decided as a group <laughs> that that's a bad idea because the screens break if they're soft on the outside. So I guess the argument I would have is that this is not a Samsung phone that they've announced or anything. This just comes from Samsung Display, which as we've discussed with other companies, Samsung Display is like its own little bastion inside of Samsung. They make these phone, they make these displays for lots of other OEMs, although in this case it seems very much like Samsung will end up shipping mm-hmm. something like this because that's you know how they've done it in the past. But it's sort of a proof of concept. And the actual the little prototype thing that they've got there, they try to like add some cameras to the edge to make it kind of look like it's a real phone. I'm really curious to see how they would like actually use like the springs and the the hinge mechanism to pull this thing together. Because yeah. the way it looks to me is that it would almost kind of kind of pop out and over. Versus just kind of like, you know, you flip open a phone like the Z Flip or the Z Fold. So I'm really curious to see how it works out. I think this may have legs. My big concern with this, though, is that instead of the current foldables, which are 
let's not, I mean, let's not mince words. They're pretty thick, generally speaking, compared to a standard phone. Yep. Adding one essentially extra layer of the screen and then however much, however much like hinge you need to use to make that happen seems like it would get you something that's a little bit closer to a normal size phone, or even a little bit smaller as far as footprint goes. But the thickness would almost certainly be significant. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, doesn't, this doesn't, doesn't feel right to me, I'll be honest. Uh, I don't get it. I'm going to have to wait and see because I don't get this form factor at all. It doesn't make sense to me. Well, you know, a form factor that might make more sense to you is the Surface Duo. Do you remember the Surface no. Duo, Mike? This makes me so sad, this story. <sighs> so uh, we talked about this. Uh, it feels like it was forever ago, but I think it was like, Late last year, it was late last <laughs> it finally year. Finally came yeah. out. Yeah, I mean, they announced it. I think two or three years ago. It was it was quite a while ago at that event where they announced a lot of mm -hmm. other things that are <clears throat> maybe not shipping. Yeah, uh, we'll but the Surface Duo is now available for six hundred and ninety nine dollars, aka half of its launch price. Fourteen hundred dollars was the launch price. So, and now it's seven hundred. Yeah. I didn't want to say it, but Ars Technica ran a headline. They called it "quote unquote" a fire sale. Definitely. Uh, not a good look for a product that's like six months old or whatever that it's on fire sale. Um, Can we try and we... put a good spin on this somehow for them? You know, like what, what would be the good spin on this that like they've got an amazing second design coming and they just want to get rid of mm. the old one? I'm trying my hardest here. Uh, they announced that it's going to get Android 11 uh, about the time Android 12 comes out. That's so, good. That's, uh, no, that's great. That's what you want. So it's going great. <laughs> yeah, it's, what else are you going for? <laughs> uh, they've had a lot of bug fixes, so um, it's still getting updates, and it's um, supposedly getting better. Uh, it's Microsoft, so it'll probably be um, supported for years, and uh, they probably have like another version that they're already done with that they're just going to release soon. Uh <laughs> the, the, the thing that doesn't make me feel great about it is there was another product that was announced at the same time as the Duo, which was the Surface Neo, which was mm. the larger device running Windows that was basically, you know, it was to be a tablet, right? Like a foldable tablet, basically. Yeah. This device was going to be running a version of Windows called Windows 10X, which was going to be designed for these types of devices, split screen devices, touchscreen devices, that kind of stuff. And was going to have different, like mostly the same feature set, but pared down in some ways advanced in others. Microsoft has confirmed that Windows 10X is not coming in 2021. And as Windows Central put it in their headline and likely never will, this, Microsoft, why'd you do, why, how do they keep falling into this trap, Austin? I feel like in, just in recent memory, like they do this exact thing so much. Yeah. So I think it was Stephen Trotton Smith on Twitter who put it the best. Because I, I thought about this and it's just like, it seems so odd that we are looking at a company who is obviously massive. Microsoft is incredibly profitable. Like from the outside, it looks like they're in the best shape they've ever been, right? You look at Xbox, you look at all these different divisions like Surface, they're doing so, so well. But yeah, like cloud and the team stuff and, and you know, all that is like yeah. fantastic. But then you look at, a lot of uh, Microsoft, not all of it, but a lot of Microsoft is built around Windows. And Windows at this point kind of feels like Mac OS did before the OS X days, right? It was good. It was solid. It was very, very, you know, well-established. It was getting a little old, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, 
even as nice as Windows 10 is, and I know they're working on a visual revamp and everything, but even as good as it has gotten, there's still a lot of old, old stuff in there, right? I mean, a good chunk of Windows really dates back to, or at least of Windows 10, dates back to Vista, which was the last, as far as I'm concerned, like real full overhaul of the operating system. And let's not kid ourselves, there's a lot of like old, old, like MS-DOS kind of stuff mm -hmm. that's still underpinning a lot of Windows, which there's certainly a huge advantage to that, right? There's the compatibility. There's the fact that you can have, you know, this great game support. Like there's a lot of inherent advantages to Windows. But Windows also has a lot of disadvantages, right? You know, whether it comes to security, whether it comes to the house of cards that it's been built on over the last 20, 30 years. There are some real concerns, I think, about how does Windows 10, 11, 12, whatever they want to call it, but how does Windows continue to evolve into the next 10, 15, 20 years, right? And is it really sustainable for Microsoft to continue to just build on build and build? It's clear to me that they've tried to not do this, right? It's not even just Windows 10X, which really was trying to be like that new kind of clean break Windows that they can kind of really build a new platform on. Think about like universal Windows apps. They've tried to push that and it's sort of never really moved on. Mm -hmm. I mean, things like Windows Phone. They've tried so many times to build kind of like their next generation move and every single one of them gets crushed under the weight of Windows and Windows 10 being the juggernaut that it is. And I, I honestly, it's hard for me to imagine what are they going to do, right? So if Microsoft decides, you know what, Windows has gotten too old, and not now, not in a couple of years, but like at some point, they can't clearly just make the exact same operating system in perpetuity, right? Mm -hmm. What are they going to do? Are they going to move to Android? Like that sounds crazy to me. It's, there's no other easy solution. And every solution that they've tried to develop to kind of push it to the next level, they've ended up killing for, I mean, probably good reasons, ultimately. But like, if you kill every other new project you bring out, you can't be surprised then you're not moving forward. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, because they it keep, it's, as you say, it's, this is multiple times, right? Where they've tried to redesign, you know, like, was it Windows 8, the Metro design? That didn't work. Yep. Like, they, they, they keep falling into the same pattern. And I agree with you. Like, the lot... It has to happen eventually, mm -hmm. right? Like that's just how progress works. This is how technology works. They're hurtling towards the point where they're going to be forced to do something. And the longer you leave it, the worse it's going to get. This just seems like a shame. I don't know what's going on where they make these decisions, right, as a company. Like, it's very confusing to me to for the same company to have made the decision to start this project and then also end it, right? Mm. Like, I, what? nothing changed. What, what could have changed in the middle? Like, that, that's always the stuff that's so confusing to me, you know? Microsoft is a massive company, right? Mm -hmm. And I, the impression I get is that there are, there's a lot of, of, I don't even know what the word is. Like, there's a lot of protection and pride between departments. And obviously, the Windows team makes a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. That is sort of the backbone of Windows. So I understand that, they don't exactly want all their decades of hard work to be usurped by like some, oh, shiny new Windows that is missing all the good parts of Windows, but you know, it, it's the, the, the building block of the future, right? So like, I get that. And also, I mean, I get that it's an uphill battle if you bring out some new version of Windows, which almost by definition has to be more limited, right? Mm -hmm. You can't bring all that legacy stuff forward without trying to, to, to change the way the operating system works, change the way that you have backwards compatibility, all of that kind of stuff, right? So like, it's hard. You've got to like make a clean break at some point, but do you make that clean break in 2015, 2021, 
2030. Like at some point you got to do it, but the longer you wait, the worse it's going to be to rip that bandaid off. Now we're obviously not developers for all we know. Microsoft could literally continue to develop windows 10 as it stands. They'll Mm -hmm. make 11 and 12 and everything, but it'll be that kind of same base for 20 more years. Right. Totally possible. In fact, Probable, right? There's going to be some version of Windows that's still going to be very much based on what we use today at that point. But like, it does seem like there's a real trend that they keep trying to come up with whatever that next generation version of Windows will be, and they haven't made it happen. And then you see stuff like the the Surface Duo, which is uh, admittedly running a version of Android that they're developing. But like, how many things have they brought out that haven't really gotten the full attention that they could have, right? Think about how amazing the Surface Duo could be if it really was building some amazing version of Android and Microsoft is pouring all these resources into it. But all these things end up being side projects and it's really easy to call a side project when you have the big juggernaut of Windows still around and still absolutely dominating. It's it's a weird predicament that they're in and I don't see at this point that they're anywhere close to figuring it out. This episode of The Test Drivers is brought to you by Gabby. When it comes to car and home insurance, so many people know that they deserve better, so they're putting their policies to the test and turning to Gabby. Gabby actually stands for Get a Better Insurance, and that's what the company stands for, too. Getting better insurance with Gabby means finding a better price for the same insurance coverage. Who knew something so incredible could have existed? They are one true comparison platform that have real rates. They give you an apples-to-apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers all in one place. You can use your current insurance information to get started, and in just minutes, you'll be able to see the quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. And get this, it's totally free to use. Austin, can you tell the test driver's audience how fast it was to get uh, the info from Gabby? Oh, it's incredibly seamless, right? So you just need to give them a little bit of information. They can actually pull a lot of your current stuff from your existing insurance. You don't have to go through and look up your VIN number or anything. You can load it up really quickly. And then if you see a better quote, they'll immediately serve it to you and you'll be good to go. So you should go and check it out for yourself right now. Gabby customers can save $961 per year on average. They're never going to sell your information, so no annoying spam or robocalls. Put your policy to the test like many others have and get a better insurance with Gabby. It's totally free to check and there's no obligation. So go to gabby.com slash testdrivers. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash testdrivers. One last time, go check it out at gabby.com slash testdrivers. Now thanks to Gabby for their support of the show and Relay FM. So there's been a bunch of iPad Pro and iMac reviews coming out over the last uh, week or so as the products are starting to arrive with people now. The the shipping windows is still super interesting. So we're recording this episode on the 20th of May. So it's the day before they should start arriving with people. And I have an iPad Pro order for my wife and an Apple TV order. And even as of right now, the estimated window is 21st to 27th. It's like, I don't know, oh. <laughs> whenever it comes, I guess. Like, <laughs> it, is, it is different. So in, in Europe and in the UK, the, the shipping from Apple is different to the US because they it's faster to ship around Europe, right, than it is to ship across places in America. So typically, we don't get like the product showing as shipped until the day before it's arriving. Oh, wow. So I've been like preparing to ship for a few days. It's just like a different way of doing it. They kind of keep it all in one place to ship it out. Um, but the reviews are all out. And ultimately, they're exactly as you would have expected. And I think in all of the good ways, people love the new iMacs. They love the new iPad Pros. 
Um, they do everything you would want them to do and they don't do the things you wouldn't want them to do, right? <laughs> like the <laughs> iMac is a fantastic upgrade to the iMac, but it's not going to replace an iMac Pro for most people. And the iPad Pro is a fantastic iPad, but it's not going to, it, it's, it's still has the same issues that iPad OS has, right? Like it's not changed any of those. Um, but I think that one of the one of the stars of the of, of all of the reviews and stuff for me has been the screen of the iPad Pro, the bigger iPad Pro. It looks fantastic. So one of my podcast co-hosts, Federico Batici, he writes at Mac Stories. He did a great review. And he had a bunch of images in his review of just what a pure black screen looks like on a current iPad and an XDR iPad. Have you seen any of these? Yeah, it is crazy to see. I mean, it makes sense though, right? Because those are really kind of like the big pitch behind their brand new mini LED displays, right? Mm -hmm. It's not quite as clean and simple as the way an OLED works, which obviously is like every pixel is completely self-backlit. But it is way closer to that than the current displays, which I mean, the, the iPad, it's not like it's bad. But it, there's a huge difference when you have thousands of LEDs compared to tens or a few dozen or something on the current model. So, like, you know, the the the, the black levels, uh, it's kind of... Taking a full black image, it looks blue on the current iPads and completely <laughs> black on the new ones. So this technology, the mini-LED technology, it's going to be great. Like, the, the rumors are suggesting that this is going to be coming to everything. So all the Macs are going to get this as well in the future. Um, and, you know, and then who knows if OLED will spread out across other things. But it kind of seems like this will do the job, right, for the type of stuff that you would want. So I'm really excited about it. I am actually uh, right now talking to you on a yellow iMac. Ooh. So I, I took delivery of a review unit of the iMac a couple of hours before we recorded. Luckily enough, I got migration assistant done just in time. Oh, I was, uh, <laughs> I was say, that's that's kind of get close there. Yep, yep. I really wanted to record the episode on it, especially because I, got, I have the yellow one. And that felt perfect ah. for the test drivers, right? For the yellow. There you go. For our, for our lovely yellow branding. Wait, so I have a big question. Uh -huh. Are you using the studio quality microphones to record right now? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> they Look, okay, so I had a, um, like a call with Apple. They kind of go over the product review and stuff. Mm -hmm. And the presenter was using the, uh, was using the IMAX microphones. And it sounded fantastic. Like, it sounded really great, right? Like, if you are doing conference calls and stuff, Zoom calls or whatever, this will 100% do a better job than pretty much anything else that you have. Like, it sounds mm -hmm. better to me than using AirPods. Like, I don't like the AirPods microphone, oh, really? right? Yeah, because okay. I, 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 I think there's just more technology going on there. Like, I don't like the way that the, the AirPods sound. Like, with, these, with this... this um, the, the microphones on the, the all of Apple's devices now, to me, they kind of sound like kind of not great USB microphones, which okay. is, okay. I think, a big tick in their column because to, to try and do something that sounds halfway decent when it's on the other side of the desk to you or whatever, I think is pretty impressive. Um, I feel like at this point, we should just, I should just record something for this and we'll just put it into the episode. Right, because I feel like we're talking about something that I could actually give a demo of, so I may as well just give a demo of it. So I'm going to switch over to the iMac right now. 
Okay, so now Test Drivers listeners, you're not Austin. You're hearing me on my regular microphone. But now our listeners are hearing me on the IMAX microphone. And I don't know how this sounds right now, but it's sitting on the other side of the desk from me. I don't know, it's like a few feet away. Um, and I, I think they do a good job of it. Like, Would I record a podcast of it all the time? No. Would I recommend anybody does? Also no. Because it's just not what these... I just personally don't feel these are what these microphones are for. But they're better than nothing and they're better than what they've replaced i mean that makes sense right i've used uh not obviously on the the imac but i've used uh the microphones on the latest macbook pros and they are surprisingly good i it's one of those things where obviously for the marketing side of things you want you know studio quality everything like that nothing like that is ever going to be studio quality i don't care if you have a hundred microphones you know wrapping around the front of an imac it's not going to replace a true studio setup that you know you're using right now to record the podcast but having better audio is one of those things i think people always underestimate right like i've shot so many videos on iphone right like a significant amount of videos have been shot partially or entirely on iphone And most people don't realize because I use an actual legitimate microphone, right? Like that's what really tells the difference in video and of course in calls and everything like that. So having these better audio sort of experiences on any of the Macs makes a big difference compared to, sure, I wish we had higher quality webcams and stuff. But like if I can hear you clearly, I care way more about that than being able to see you in crystal clear 4K. Yeah, and that's the stuff that they do with that, which is smart. You know, like they have a bunch of microphones on the device and it's trying to listen for background noise and reduce echo and stuff like that. Like I expect, though, that people will hear more of the echo that I'm in. I'm in a very big, like mostly empty, you know, but with the amount of space that we have room. And I do a lot to try and get the echo levels down in the recorded audio but i'm doing that with very high grade equipment right so and i'm expecting Mm -hmm. that the imac picked up a bit more but you know really for me right now the most that i have to say on this machine because i have not really put it through its paces is kind of the thing that interests me most about it anyway which is the design i'm super curious actually before we even get into the full design i have one really big question okay so i saw on instagram you posted the photo yeah can you give me a Quick review of the color, because that yellow looks yellow. It's very yellow. It's the imagery, like the image that I've taken uh, and the images that I've seen other people take. The photos come out more gold than real life. It is definitely a yellow on the verge of gold, right? Okay. The, The back part of it anyway, because... You know, it's it's yellow metal. It has that kind of goldy look to it. Um, but it it's not... It really does look like I have a gold computer, which I don't. Um, but it is okay. a very deep yellow. The front, I love. It's very pale. And I okay. really like it. Like, just today when I've been using this machine, every now and then, like, the yellow just catches my eye a little bit and it just makes me feel good. Because it's like, <laughs> this is just like a fun computer yeah. right it's just fun i i can't help but love it for that to be honest 
That okay. I, I've looked at all. I haven't seen any of these in person yet. Uh-huh. I've looked at them all on the site. I've looked at the videos and stuff. And I go back and forth a lot on like what color I like most. I feel like the silver and the blue are probably like kind of the safer bets. But like I've especially looked at the yellow. Have you seen uh, D Brand sells skins for the iMac and they sell like they black skin? I uh, no no no. But, okay, look look. Hear me out for a second, okay? Black. And yellow is a really good color combo. I've thought about like, what if I got a yellow iMac, but like skinned the actual bezels black to kind of get that Pikachu look. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. For me personally, it it would just upset me for someone to to put a skin on one of these machines. Honestly, like for me, I just think they look so, it looks so cool. I even want to cover it up. Like I, I am so happy that they have done this that they have computers that are in these big bright and bold colors yeah i think it's like it just doesn't feel like anything else that is available now and i appreciate that you know like there's a little bit of nostalgia in it for me in a way that like when i when i was first getting in interested in like apple this is i don't know gosh knows how many years ago too quickly approached coming up to 20 years ago <laughs> they were kind of known as a company that was whimsical, you know, like that that was their design style. And like when I was getting into it, like quite more significantly, you know, the, the iMac that everybody knows, the colored iMac, like they were moving away from that design yeah. by then. But it was still very much in everybody's mind, right? Like even though it started to move to the white plastic and stuff like that. You know, but I was the you know there for the whole iPod and iPod Nano and all the colors there and all that kind of stuff, and it kind of felt like that there was an element of fun and whimsicalness about Apple's design, and then over the last ten fifteen years, they have moved to luxury as their aesthetic, mm, right? Like yeah, how perfect yeah. can we make this thing look, and how you know how incredible can we make these materials, like you know how can we sculpt them in such a way that nobody else can which is has been fantastic right and i'm sure has been one of the drivers for apple to become as successful as they are today but it's kind of nice to have some of that whimsical nature back again in these colors yeah and and this is when this is fashion right this is how it goes this is trends this they 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 adapt over time and everything comes back around and honestly i just i want to see them do more stuff like this like this design is so wild to me, like how thin it is, stuff like that. Like you didn't need to do that, but I'm so happy you did. <laughs> all right. Uh, that sounds like all the review I need. I, I've been debating whether or not I want to do an iMac for the house actually. So mm-hmm. uh, we were talking about this before the show, but uh, Dave 2D, he did a great video on the new iMacs and he had this great point about how it's like this almost perfect like machine to fit into like your, you know, your kitchen or your, your sort of home because unlike most PCs, which are aggressively a PC or even like, you know, current Macs, you know, that are silver and space gray and stuff. I mean, they're very computery, right? They don't really blend in. These iMacs, they seem like they, I mean, between the white bezels, which kind of blends in with like a white wall, like they seem much more like they're meant to be a part of your house instead of being like the focal point. And there's something about that that's really resonated with me that's very different than pretty much any other machine that's out there right now. I mean, sure, we're waxing poetic about a, a yellow computer, but like, uh, there's something to that. There's something to it's a little bit of a different design philosophy, I think. Should we talk about the future, though? The future.
Adventure. Is this I, a I meme that I don't understand? Are you make me feel old now. SpongeBob. SpongeBob. So this, all right. SpongeBob. Aside, a little too old for SpongeBob. My younger brother watched SpongeBob, <gasps> and oh. and I appreciate it. I found it very funny, but it that just wasn't my childhood, right? So I don't have that feel. SpongeBob to me always feels like that was the cartoon that my younger brother adored. Mm, and I always enjoyed yeah. it when I saw it, but I was, it's kind of, I, I just, it's passed me by. So the SpongeBob so, memes, whilst they are prevalent, uh, especially in YouTube culture, which is very intriguing to me, I'm not sure why that's happened. Um, it, that missed me. I knew that, I knew you were doing something, but I didn't know what it was. If I can give a, a word of advice, the first couple of seasons of SpongeBob are actually really still pretty entertaining as an adult. And I, if you spend even watching a handful of episodes of those first couple of seasons, not only will you understand 3,000% more memes on the internet, but <laughs> some of those episodes are legitimately, I'm serious, man, I've like watched some of them recently. They hold up. Some of the newer stuff, you know, like yeah. The Simpsons and like, you know, people obviously can complain about that and that's fine, right? Obviously it's a different time, but like some of the stuff they got away with back in like the late 90s, early 2000s, really really impressive and honestly nostalgic glasses off I actually a friend of mine he had never seen Spongebob sort of same to you it was like oh you know kind of just passed him by he went back and watched a bunch of Spongebob you know just kind of leaving it on the TV and he was talking about how like not only did he sort of pick up on a lot more memes but how much he enjoyed the humor even as a full grown adult so I'm just throwing it out there if you or any of the test drivers listeners have somehow not seen some of those early episodes of Spongebob highly recommended Truly a masterclass of, of animation history. But uh, yeah, uh, future Max, whatever we were talking about. I will say SpongeBob does have one of my favorite um, visual gags that I've ever seen in a cartoon. There's like an episode where he, Sp SpongeBob's nervous about something. I don't remember what it is. He starts biting his nails. <laughs> and then he starts shredding them into his mouth. It's like, uh, like then he has like multiple arms. You know what? Do you, you know? Do you know this? Yes, yes, yes. It's a very good image. Anyway, <laughs> there was a report from Bloomberg by Mark Gurman about a selection of Macs. Uh, I'm going to go through these, and we can stop where we want to because there's a ton of detail. So, this is basically setting out the roadmap Apple has to turn over the rest of their Mac line, and then also, actually, I think actually no, this is the entire Mac line getting turned over, whether it's Apple Silicon. Or not. So MacBook Pro will debut, quote, as soon as early summer. Please let it be early summer. Yes. 14 and 16-inch options with new Apple Silicon chips in them. So they're not going to have the M1 in them. They will have eight high-performance cores and two energy-efficient cores. So this makes for a 10-core CPU. This is up from eight on the M1. And the M1 has four high-performance and four uh, energy-efficient cores. Just straight up, I found it interesting that they would reduce the energy efficiency cores on the new MacBook Pro. Like, that's just intriguing to me. Yeah. Um, we'll see what that means. I mean, those devices, I guess, tend to be and will be bigger, so maybe they can put bigger batteries in them. Uh, but that was just intriguing to me. But, of course, professional machines, performance should come first, right? Yeah. I think it's interesting because currently, so ever since sort of Apple really switched over to the big little configuration where they have the high performance and the power efficient cores, they've had four of the power efficient cores, whether mm -hmm. it's been in iPhones, iPads, now M1s. 
But it makes sense on a Mac that sure, having a couple of the energy efficient cores should be fine for the vast majority of the kind of the basic stuff you're doing. But I think it does make sense to go to six or even as uh, German has discussed, eight of the high performance cores because that's really what you need for the quote unquote real work. I think that's like a pretty natural blend of things. Mm -hmm. But also I think one of the other things that really jumped out to me is the graphics. So the only thing I've really noticed going from like a 16 inch MacBook down to the 13 inch M1 MacBook Pro is the graphics performance isn't quite there. I mean, sure, an M1 GPU is better than most, especially better than anything in that like kind of like 13 inch class, but it is a noticeable step down from something like the dedicated graphics in you know a 16 inch MacBook or something. So this time, according to German, we're gonna be going from eight graphics cores up to 16 or even 32, which seems way, way more like the kind of full step up across the board that I feel like most people were kind of expecting at the M1X, M2X, whatever they decide to call these sort of more performance-oriented processors. And with the option of going up to 64 gigabytes of RAM. They had to do that, right? Yeah. They, that was... Even just I, for the look. <sighs> even if they... If, yeah. you know, I could imagine Apple saying, like, you don't need it. Like, the way we built the system, you just don't need it. Um, or like you need less, right? Like maybe 32 is enough. But I can imagine it's just like, we're just going to go to 64 because otherwise people won't stop complaining about it. <laughs> it yeah, no, but I do, I do think, look, unify memory all you want. Uh, you need more RAM sometimes, right? And 16 sure. is fine, and I haven't had massive issues with it, but certainly for some big workflows. I can't, you know, I've been using my MacBook Pro every day since I got it, and I can't point to any time where I feel like RAM has been, I've had any bottleneck, let alone could point to it and say RAM is a bottleneck for me. Yeah, same, same. But I do know if you're working in things like a million Photoshop layers, After Effects, you're working with some more demanding workloads, you could certainly use and take advantage of more than 16 gigs of RAM. So I, I'm happy. I've always kind of felt that 32 is kind of like the I'm totally future-proofed, I'm totally kind of set kind of range. So that's probably what I would look at. But the fact that they can go all the way up to 64, I agree. Probably more than anything, just so they don't get a bunch of people complaining on Reddit like, oh, the new MacBooks are so pro, except they don't have RAM. Like, I'm sure it's just like, whatever. We'll just throw that as an option. We'll design it like that and just everyone leave us alone. <laughs> can you imagine the power of this machine? If you went for, you got a 10-core CPU, 32 core GPU and 64 gigabytes of RAM. Oof. I mean, so the CPU is actually still a pretty major jump too, because I feel like it's like, oh, eight to 10, whatever. But I'm assuming that the, the 10 core, we don't know if it'll be based on the M1 or like the next generation M2 or whatever. But regardless, even if you literally just double those more powerful cores, right? Whatever they decide to call them, the Firestorm or, or whatever. Just by doubling those, you're going to be giving yourself a ton more performance. You get, you know, four times the RAM and you're essentially getting two to four X the graphics. I mean, all of that is taking a system which was already incredibly capable as it sits now. I mean, you're probably going to see a lot of benchmarks where these new systems are double, triple, maybe, just mm. maybe, four times more powerful than the systems that they just were basically flexing on Intel with saying, oh, it's two times more powerful, three times more powerful. I mean, like, these are ridiculous jumps, especially considering that if it comes out really in the early summer kind of timeframe, there's less than 12 months from Intel, double, triple, quadruple M1, double, triple, quadruple M1X. I mean, that's like, whew, gives me a little, a little, 
little tingle, man. A little tingle, not gonna lie. Well, you, you, you just wait. There's more coming. This report also doubles down on the idea of MagSafe and the HDMI port and SD card making their way back yes. to the MacBook Pro. Apple is apparently working on a new Mac Mini with the same chips as that MacBook Pro with four Thunderbolt ports on it rather than the two that it currently has. Uh, but nice. This one is a little bit more up in the air, apparently, as to whether they'll go down that route. They're also working yeah. on a new MacBook Air, and there's other rumors aside from the one that Mark's given about a new design for the MacBook Air, which makes sense to kind of actually uh, bring it in line with the new iMac design. So kind of the flat edges, thinner, kind of boxy shape uh, in colors. Um, this one is said to be a direct successor to the M1's chip, so it have the same CPU core count, but it will run faster with graphics potentially going up a core or two on the machine. This makes perfect sense, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. It could be argued the MacBook Air's CPU, the M1, right, like would last it for another few years, but they should update the design on that machine. Um, so they're moving yeah. that way. Apparently as well, Apple's considering a new low-end MacBook Pro with the same chips as the MacBook Air, I can't work out what this would look like, whether maybe it's just a, a an update to the current MacBook Pro design-wise, but with new chips in it. This one's really confusing to me. I kind of can't. I know what this product would be meant for as like an entry-level MacBook Pro, but if they update the design of all of the other machines, like this one's a weird one to me. I don't know if yeah. they may be going for an education kind of price point or something. Yeah, I mean, the current 13-inch MacBook Pro, the the one with the M1, the the two-port, that's always been a little bit of a weird case for me because, like, I like it because it gives me the the active cooling for, like, you know, editing and stuff. But, like, there's not really a huge advantage, certainly if you get rid of the touch bar. There's not a huge advantage going yeah. from MacBook Air to the base MacBook Pro. And that's a good point, actually, because the rumors are suggesting that the new MacBook Pros will ditch the touch bar. So would they keep the touch bar on this machine i can't work Maybe. this one out like as i say this is the first rumor that i've seen talking about a new low-end macbook pro like and this is the only details we have is that it will have the same chip as the macbook air the larger imac will also get a new processor probably akin to what's in the macbook pro um i would expect but apparently mark german saying that this was put on hold for apple to focus on the 24 inch which again i don't fully understand that Phil, they're a big company, you know? I've heard a lot of rumors that it's, it's well, not even really rumors, it makes sense, that it's very difficult for Apple to get engineers in and out of China and working with the factories. Oh, I wouldn't be okay. surprised. Yeah, yeah okay. It, there's only so many people on the ground, there's only so long they can keep them there, whatever the case is. So it's like, oh, well, you know, we can only QC so many products or so many parts. I didn't think about the fact that COVID could have, like, could have become an issue there. That's a very good point, Austin. Yeah, so makes sense. Also, I'm sure with the chip shortage, they're not gonna uh, be too sad about <laughs> like, oh well, we can't get the chips anyway. Uh, we'll we'll talk to you in September. But new Mac Pro, now this thing, twenty or forty core CPU. Oh yes, which consists of either sixteen or thirty two performance cores and four or eight efficiency cores. Again, 
super strange to me. Like, I know that this machine has obviously got way more CPU, but it having double the, it would have like double the performance and double the efficiency cores of the MacBook Pro, but I would still, like, why does the Mac Pro need four efficiency cores? I don't know. They do lots of interesting stuff. The makeup of it, I don't know. 64 or 128 core GPU. That's more like it. Uh, it's looking at being two to four times more powerful than the Intel Mac Pro, but I expect that is just on paper, right? Because I would actually expect it to be more than that um, because of it, you know what Apple depends, has shown. Yeah. Well, because you're going from what the maximum spec of the current Intel Mac Pro is a 28 core, I yep. believe. So if you're going up to 40 cores, you're certainly, I mean, those 40 cores are all going to be lifting their weight a lot more. I'm actually more curious about the GPU. Me too. Because with the Mac Pro, the current Mac Pro is very much a desktop PC, right? You've got a CPU, you've got dedicated slots for RAM that you drop in, you have PCI slots or MPX slots, I guess, in this case, where you drop your GPU in. I'm going to be curious to see, sure, going up to like, you know, from 8 to like 32 cores, on a GPU, on like a laptop. I get, they could probably make that still happen all on the unified package. It's gonna be big, but like that seems doable. 128 GPU cores, that's not, I don't think, gonna fit on the board. I feel like that's gotta be in a an add-on graphics card, right? Like they've gotta be able to just like, you know, you buy the 64 core GPU, or you buy the 128 core GPU and you just install it, right? I, I, I can't imagine how else they're gonna be able to pull that off. That seems like a very large GPU just to have kind of, on a massive die, and you have to do all the cooling around just the single chip on the process or on the uh, actual board. I don't know. Strange. Yeah, I mean, I could imagine them having it in one of their MPX cards. Mm hmm. Right? Oh, it makes sense. I could imagine them doing that. Yeah. Because it is a big. I mean, it's, it, this really depends, right? So, as well, this, this is uh, expected to be a smaller physical design than the current Mac Pro, but to be similar. So like, I don't know, imagine like a mini version of the current Mac Pro. But there's just a lot of questions around this machine. It's like, well, are these the only graphics options? If they are, what are they like, right? How do they work, you know? Because one of the yeah. great things about the Mac Pro is that you can basically put anything you want in it, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's, it's the closest thing that you'll get from Apple to a PC, right? You can put stuff in it. Like, you know, they, Apple sell their cards, but you can put other graphics cards in these machines. You you have yeah. to do a bit of extra work to get them to work. But I just wonder if this is the route that Apple would continue to go down with uh, Apple Silicon Mac Pro. But then the question has got to be asked is, would they have done all this work, design work on the Mac Pro if they were going to replace it so soon? Like, yeah, that's, I, that's the part that doesn't totally make sense to me. I mean, I guess if you consider they just take the current Mac Pro and just, you know chop it down a little bit in height so instead of having the seven or eight MPX modules to have like four or five, something like that might make sense. Yeah. I will say one thing, right? So the Apple Silicon story has been incredibly rosy. It's been so impressive. They've absolutely just been dominating everything they've done. It's been this huge leap. I do think the expectation on the graphics might be a little different because it's one thing to say, hey, we've just, you know, completely killed the game on the CPU side. We've got all these cores. It's, it's great, right? Like that, that makes sense to yep. me. But, Apple has never had that same kind of leadership on the graphics side, right? No. Right now, they're good, right? On on the M1s, they're good. But like we were saying earlier, they're good for the platform that they're in. Yeah, they're, and they're good for what you use them 
before. Like yes, not it's not gaming, and like and Apple is in a very different space. So like you know as you're saying right, with the with the Apple Silicon chips, they're coming in at a time where there's a lot of upending in the x86 world anyway. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. look, graphics at the moment. This is the best. It's like, you know, we're seeing bigger jumps in graphics performance than we've ever seen before, right? Like, that's why nobody yeah. can buy a graphics card right now because the, the technology, you know, like it's it's actually funny in a way, right? Like, people, freak, everyone's freaking out about Apple Silicon and the jumps that they've made and, and that kind of stuff. It is actually similar amount of freaking out when it comes to graphics cards, right? Like, mm-hmm. the, th- the, the, the NVIDIA and, and AMD stuff that we've been talking about over the last year, it's like, people are freaking out about that too because it's also huge jumps. Yeah, so I could see this Mac Pro, even with a 128-core GPU, right? I can see it outperforming the AMD stuff in the current Mac Pro. I could see it being maybe on par with some of the higher-end, or maybe a little bit above some of the higher-end AMD stuff. But you look at what like NVIDIA is doing with like you know the, the 3090 or their, their Quadro stuff. I wouldn't be surprised if, if Apple does actually have a little bit of a struggle trying to keep up with the very, very high-end stuff that, of course, AMD and NVIDIA have been spending decades and decades working on. I mean, it'll be interesting to see. I don't want to, like, say, oh, it's going to be bad or anything, but I do think out of all the things we're looking at for here for this Apple Silicon transition, the graphics is definitely the biggest question mark, and the graphics are definitely where I'm going to be a little bit more surprised if Apple's on parity compared to everywhere else, where they legitimately do seem like they're ahead. Exciting times are coming, man. I am so ready. I am so ready. Uh, hopefully, they announce all this at WWDC and it all goes on sale <laughs> the next day. Yeah, easy. Yeah, that's of course, of course. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Intrazone. I love new podcasts, and I know you love podcasts too. You're listening to one right now. Finding new podcasts is a great experience. If you're looking to find something new to listen to, The Intrazone is a bi-weekly podcast of conversations and interviews on how technology like OneDrive and Microsoft SharePoint can work for you. You'll hear from guest experts behind the scenes and out in the field, so you can see how SharePoint can fit into your everyday work life, letting you easily share and manage content, knowledge, and applications in and around your teams. Each show covers a bunch of stuff like news and announcements with guest perspectives. They have focused topics every single week, FAQs, and upcoming events as well that are going on. And things that they discussed in the past episode, I'm sure there's some stuff that could pique your interest, like talking about the best way to manage security and compliance, cloud administration, AI and machine learning, and even designing your intranet to best suit the needs of your team. One of the episodes that I checked out recently was looking about how Microsoft Teams can be used to work within your organization. We remote work now more than ever, and I think it's going to be something that's going to continue. Teams are going to become more distributed, and really understanding now how you can make these tools work for you will benefit you for longer time into the future. So go and listen to it right now. Just search for The Intrazone wherever you get your podcasts. That's I-N-T-R-A-Z-O-N-E, or just click the link in the show notes. Go check it out right now. It's The Intrazone. A thanks to The Intrazone by Microsoft SharePoint for their support of this show and Relay FM. So Google I.O. just happened. Oh boy, did it did it happen all right? That was uh, that was quite the event, wasn't it? it was I so watched many... all of it. Oh, did you? Yeah. I regret that decision. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'll be fully transparent. I tried and failed because, oh boy, that was 
Uh, quite the event. I don't know what they're doing. I really don't know what they do, why they do the things that they do. I, I will recommend that people watch what I suggested you watch, which is The Verge did like a 16-minute video kind yes. of covering all of the announcements in what was a two-hour keynote. I don't know why they need... Well, you know what? I say I don't know why. I have a theory about Google I've had this for years. I don't think it's particularly original, but it's it's what I think, right? Google I.O., for some reason, is the time where Google wants to talk about all the things that it's doing, right? And Google is made up of, I think, maybe more than other technology companies. Lots of small teams, right? Because they have loads mm -hmm. of different things that they do. And it feels like Google I.O., every manager wants to have their time. Yep, yep. And they let too many people have their time. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, Google I.O. is a developer conference? It is. I would say there was probably about 15 to 20 minutes of information for developers in the Google two-hour Google I.O. keynote. Mm -hmm. The rest of it is like, hey, let's tell you what's going on in Google Images. So this is how you can buy stuff in Google Images now. Or like, and that's like a genuine thing that they're doing. Oh, let's talk about Google Translate. Or here's this future project that we may never actually ship and it's us talking to Pluto, which is a fun idea, but like, <laughs> you know, and it's like, I don't really understand who the market is. Like, I think that what Google are trying to do is what Apple does, right? So every presentation Apple has, no matter what it is, gets a wider audience than just the people it might be intended for. So WWDC is a developer conference. They have a keynote that talks about the things coming in their platforms. And every now and then, Apple will also add something else in, a consumer feature, a consumer product, right, that developers can't take advantage of. But hey, everyone's watching, so let's throw this in there. Something like Apple Music. Although the Apple Music WWDC was Apple's worst WWDC in recent times because they pushed too far on this. The, 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 the Apple Music presentation went on too long. But Google was just like, well, we've got people watching. We're just going to tell them all this stuff. And I just don't think it flows very well. I really, I think yeah. it's it's too long. It's boring. And it's a bunch of stuff I couldn't care. I just could not find any time to care about for me, right? And I think that they are overstuffing the event. Like, Really, everyone's watching this for Android. And Android was in the last half an hour and it took like 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And also, look, I feel like we should give everyone a little bit of, of, of slack when it comes to the production of these things. But they made some strange choices on it because they had like the outdoor stages and then they had sort of like everything was in like in the bubbles and they were doing like active signing at the same time. But then like they kept like all the graphics of like we're live. And this, it was just yeah, so they this was at Google's campus outside of a small audience. It was a live presentation. They kept showing the word live on the screen. I don't yeah. know why they felt the requirement to, to do that. Like they were showing off or something like <laughs> we do our events live. Like I, I got it. The audience was Google employees. And it was really small. And they kept applauding, and it was really weird because the applause <laughs> was very clearly at the times that they were supposed to applaud. Yeah. So that just, it just felt strange. And they had like some celebrity cameos that were just so awkward. Like people, some people online seem to like it. They had Michael Pena, who's in um, the Ant Man movies, and they had him when they were talking about quantum computing, which makes a lot of sense, right? But mm -hmm. it just felt really 
awkward to me because I think they were doing it live and I don't know why you would do that. It was like scripted. So I don't know why they did that part live, right? Like pre-record that part, do a bunch of takes, right? I don't really Mm -hmm. understand why they did that. You know, I don't usually have an issue with the presentation. I didn't have an issue with how it was presented. They made some weird choices, but I don't think that that was the detriment of the event. I think the the problem with the event is that they just spent too much time talking about stuff that wasn't things that developers could use. And I don't really get that. Like they should have their Google I.O. developer event and they should also have another keynote then. Two one-hour keynotes would be fine rather than one two-hour keynote where there's a bunch of stuff that you don't want to know about. You know, it's like, here's our updates to uh, Google Workspace, like Google Docs or whatever. This is interesting stuff that I want to know about. But if I was a developer, I can't do anything for this. This is your product. Like, you completely own it. Mm -hmm. And it's also like a, it's weird, right? Because then again, it's like, you know, similarly, right? Going back to Apple, because we've got to compare them. They will show you stuff that's going on in the operating system that is theirs of their doing, right? So you could say like, hey, Mike, they do that. But like, it's still focused, right? You know what you're going to get, which is they're just going to talk about what the operating systems are doing. I don't know. It just didn't work for me, right? The the overall event just didn't work for me. Um, But there were a couple of interesting things. Really, again, the stuff that happened at the end. Uh, Android 12. So they have a new UI. It's called Material U. And I, they need to stop with the names. Way too many like material, that. this, that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, first, first, before we even get it, can I just get like a super quick temperature reading? Thoughts yeah. on the look of Android 12. Love it. Okay, I agree. It's nice. It's, it's pleasant. Mm-hmm. It, to me, Android, I do think, has had always a little bit of an identity crisis because... It does feel like every couple of years they completely scrap everything they're doing and they go for a completely new design language. And you can see that not only is that always not necessarily carried across on the various different, you know, Samsung skins and whatnot, but also you can really see it in the apps because a developer will spend like, you know, like Spotify, they'll develop their own thing and then, oh, they'll add like some features for Android 10 or whatever. And all of a sudden Android 12 comes out and they have to redesign everything. Like you can see kind of like which developers have spent a lot of time or built their apps at certain eras. And it feels a little bit sort of odd when there's like these huge shifts in the way that the UI is meant to be developed to the point where I feel like nowadays, most developers kind of ignore all of the, the custom Android stuff. And they just go, oh, whatever. We're just going to make this look exactly the same on iOS and Android. We're going to make our yeah. own design language and we're not going to try to chase you every couple of years when you decide to you know throw out the playbook and decide everything is purple now or whatever. Yeah, and also there is that element of larger companies, and I understand it, kind of like, why, why are you telling us how our app should look? We should decide how our app should look. And that's just like, mm-hmm. a, but and it, the, I feel like if I could, if I could sum up the design and I recommend people go, there's a, a link, I put a link to a video that Dieter Bone did at The Verge. He got like, I think a pretty exclusive look at uh, Android 12 and got, got to show it off. Um, the material, the way I would describe the material you is Google leaning into like aesthetics. Mm-hmm. The way that people were designing their own home screens with iOS 14 and widgets and all that kind of stuff. It feels like they're really leaning into that. It's like a lot of muted pastel colors, interesting shapes. Um, you know, I think it looks kind of cool. It, it does look very different. Um, I can imagine how it's more personal feeling, especially where the default color palettes are decided based on your lock screen wallpaper and whatever. And you can choose That's it cool. yourself. Uh, I like that they're using machine learning to get complementary colors and stuff like that because mm-hmm. it can be really difficult to 
pick all of the colors if it's not if you're not a designer right but you can say i want this color and they're like great the rest of the ui will use these colors as well i think that's kind of cool um matthias duarte uh introduced it and i really liked what he said which is kind of like you could feel the nervousness in him it's like look I'm a designer. We're all designers, right? It's awkward as a designer to suggest that somebody else can design your interface. <laughs> right? <laughs> and I get point. it, right? Like, it is because designers have their tastes and they want to create an experience to their taste. People do really weird things with the... Black and green. Black and green. Sure. That's it. Whatever That's it. you want, right? People do weird <laughs> stuff. And so it can be awkward and difficult as a, as a designer for your opinions to, to just be it's counted right but they are working on creating a set of tools that they think will look good together so yeah, i think it looks nice I, I genuinely think it looks nice um it apple's not going to make a big difference like this i can't imagine there's a new design for ios so if this takes off google's got the leg up on them for at least a year yeah and plus it's not just the aesthetic right? i guess it, it it extends more than just kind of like Color. the visual because yeah. yeah there's a lot more that they've done under the hood not only with just with performance which i always take that with a little bit of a grain of salt i mean android has gotten to the point where it is i know it's got like this old uh, reputation of like oh the only way to make an android phone faster is to give it more power more ram like i don't think that's necessarily really true because they've done a lot over the years to improve performance but mm -hmm. something else i think that they've put a lot of effort into the oneplus i've always given a lot of credit to is things like the animations, is things like trying to make things not necessarily actually faster, although they've done that, but to feel faster, right? I always feel like that's one of my main like strengths of OnePlus and what they do with Oxygen OS because they do everything to make it seem so smooth, so fluid, and it's not like super over the top. And a lot of people don't even notice it, but like they do a lot of little tweaks that kind of do add up. And it seems like that's something that the mainline Android is really kind of focused on this year. It's like, hey, what can we do to kind of give you these nice little animations? What can we do to kind of make it seem like the app is opening faster or you're swiping quicker or whatever, even though it's really just a trick of like kind of starting the animation a couple frames earlier or giving a little bit of a bounce or something. But that stuff does add up and i feel like that's one of the things that android has been missing for the majority of its sort of time they've added stuff here or there but that's something that ios has always had down very very well so it just feels fluid and snappy and fast and that's something important when you have a smartphone that costs hundreds or thousand dollars or whatever the case is you want it to feel fast you want it to look nice at the same time so props to them on that i really like the fact that they're kind of pushing not only just the the you know the real visuals and the colors but also kind of the underpinning technology and transitions and everything to kind of make it feel as good as it looks they've also done some stuff on privacy and security so they have got this like screen in the in, in android where you can see what applications have requested what permissions and at what time and you can shut them off and they also have a way to disable the phone at uh, the uh, microphone and camera across the entire system uh even if you've given access to like so for example you could turn it off and open the android camera app and it wouldn't work so it's kind of cool mm -hmm. and then they're also doing stuff to like try and you know bridge the phones on chromebooks so like you'll be able to sign into your chromebook if your phone's nearby access your messages access your images and that kind of stuff you know i know we actually have a lot more to talk about from io but you know one of the things that does jump out to me is chrome os and how Chrome OS, we get these features all the time, right? Like Chrome OS hasn't had any like major new announcement in a while. Like it's like, you know, you get little tweaks and stuff. And, you know, the big thing really was a few years ago when they added Android apps. But like low-key Chrome OS 
has gotten so many of these nice little features mm -hmm. that it's so much more than just Chrome, you know, a, a, an operating system built around Chrome. Like they've done so much there. I, I find it really interesting that Chrome OS just continues to just get better and better and better. And no one really gives it credit. I mean, it didn't feel like Google. It's like, oh yeah, uh, Chrome no, OS. Uh, Chrome OS got no time except for when they were talking about the features that Android had given it. Yeah, which is strange. That's a big deal, right? And they've done a lot to make it where just like you have that great synergy if you use like, you know, an iPhone and a Mac or whatever, you've got almost, this, well, maybe not quite the same level, but you're pretty close to this point between stuff like, you know, they've got like Swift Pair with the headphones and all these various different features that allow you to use your Chromebook and your Android phone together. And I don't think they give that enough credit. I don't think anyone really recognizes how much they've done there and how good that experience really is. Just shout out to Chrome OS. They didn't talk about it enough in IOO, but like, shout out. It's, it's, it's good stuff. And Wear OS. Oh boy. This well, is wild to me. <laughs> so <laughs> they refer to it. I start off by talking about this is our biggest update ever. They took they first said it's a unified platform. So I got on with What does that mean? And then said new consumer experiences focusing on health and fitness. <laughs> the new unified platform, it's Tizen and Wear OS. They're working with Samsung to oh, create boy. one version now to run on these two devices. This is a failure for Google, right? Is what this is. Uh, man, I I don't even know how to take this. I, I, is this a failure on Samsung that they were trying to do their own thing and they've come back to the fold? Is this Google no, recognizing I see this that they more can? On Google, because okay. okay, so if it's Samsung has failed, well then they would just adopt Wear OS, right? Okay, that's yeah, you're correct. Yeah, no, that is absolutely the case. If Google's failed, they've had to go to Samsung and say, is what I assume is just happening, uh, Samsung, you have a larger market for wearables, like you have a larger user base for wearables on Tizen than we do on Wear OS. What can we do to make your devices run Wear, run Wear OS? What do you need? And then they've worked on that together. That's what I think has happened here. It's super interesting. What I'll say is it's a failure that you can turn into a positive. Because this is way better for users, right? To have Wear OS available on what are the best non-Apple uh, smartwatches, which are Samsung stuff. I think that Samsung smartwatches or the Galaxy watches look great. I think the design of them is really great. Um, but the problem they would have always had is the app availability, right? Mm -hmm. And then in the inverse, Wear OS has more apps and stuff available for it, but then the devices maybe aren't as uh, refined. So this is now one set of APIs for all devices, longer battery life, better performance, and then they've added in a bunch of like more options for what they call tiles, which is their glanceable information, which is, I don't really know how to describe it. I guess it's just yeah. like the apps themselves. I, I, I don't know. Um, Google's putting their money where their mouth is and redesigning and adding new apps. And then I'd forgotten Google bought Fitbit, uh, but they had a, a moment <laughs> with that where they took it. So Fitbit are going to be bringing um, health and wellness features into Wear OS from their own devices. And then they're going to be creating Wear OS devices that are Fitbit branded in the future. That's good. I mean, this is all good stuff. Uh it's really not coming from a place of strength. You know, like Apple no. has absolutely owned this market. Yep. You know, like they have a much bigger share of the smartwatch market than they do the phone market. 
which is mm. really interesting. I don't know what that says. I mean, Apple from day one, the watch was a... I didn't have the flashy round screen and all the kind of stuff that some Android watches had before, but the Apple Watch from day one was a very, very good smartwatch. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I think that they've done really well is consistently making it better, adding all of these great health features. Because, I mean, if you go back and watch that original Apple Watch keynote, I think it was the iPhone 6, was it? It was six, right? When they announced like Apple Pay and everything. You watch that. They were talking about it in a very different way than it ended up turning yeah. out. You know, they're talking about all these apps and things you could do from their watch. But really the watch has kind of come into its own as a companion yeah. to kind of always be doing stuff for you without you really necessarily thinking about it. It right? is a great example of them learning from the way the product is used, you know, and they really mm -hmm. lent into health as the major driver. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and that's been, it's worked really great for them, which is I'm sure why Google bought Fitbit because yes. they know, right? Like Fitbit was still managing to sell these devices on their own, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they were starting to feel the squeeze, right? The Apple Watch really squeezed Fitbit kind of into this position, I think. Um, but Fitbit still, still seemed to be pretty popular. Like it was kind of like, if you don't own a Apple Watch, you probably have a Fitbit device. If yep. you, you know, yep. like if you're not going to buy an Apple Watch, you're probably going to go Fitbit. So it's got, it's actually a good brand. I think it has got a good brand recognition. So I hope Google don't change the name. It doesn't seem like they will, but it would be really bad yeah. if they did that. Um, but I think they've learned from that, right? Like now bringing the Nest brand back to the front again. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it feels like one of those kind of situations where it's like the classic consolidation of like you've got Apple with the huge overwhelming dominant market share. And then you've got Samsung, Fitbit, and Google all kind of fighting over that last, you know, 30% or whatever. Well, guess what? Now in the span of a fairly short amount of time, they've all kind of conglomerated together. And now they're going to try to, you know, do their best to fight against Apple. And honestly, I feel like that's the smart move because Apple has just done such a great job that like you kind of can't have three platforms that are all sort of sort of competing, but they also are very much kind of competing directly over the exact same people who are essentially just not iPhone users. So this seems like a good move. I'm really curious how you just merge Wear OS and Tizen. I don't think that's how it works. You just smash the two operating systems together. I, I, I'd be very curious to see what it means that we're just going to put all our APIs together and just roll it over into a big sandwich. But it does seem like it's a solid move. And I look forward to seeing the next couple of years of they're still calling it Wear OS, right? Even the Samsung devices are going to be branded Wear OS now, right? My expectation is, yes, that I don't think Tizen will exist anymore. Yeah. I think it's what's sense. happening. So it's the Samsung devices are going to go to Wear OS. What I, they didn't mention in the, the presentation, I don't know if it's been clarified since, and, but I believe it's the case. Like Previous Wear, um, Tizen devices will become Wear OS. Oh. I'm not 100% sure about that. I think they kind of made reference to it, but I, I'm not sure. But my expectation is, surely it is, because otherwise there wouldn't be a, we're collaborating together. It would just be, we've done a deal with Samsung and they're coming back to Wear OS, right? Yeah, I think so as well. Yeah, that would make sense to me. It's interesting. Um, you know what else is interesting? Well, yeah, many ref many times they referenced during the presentation Pixel and Fall, uh -huh. right? So uh -huh. what's going on with the Pixel and the Fall? Well, uh, so I, I, I think we talked about it uh, last episode. I was really expecting them to at least give a tease to Google Silicon, right? I mean, at this point, it's very well rumored. It's very well leaked, you know, that they're clearly working with Samsung on some kind of semi-custom chip that 
certainly I don't think is just going to come out and just be a straight competitor to Apple Silicon, but it very much seems like in that vein, right? And in classic Google fashion, they've been talking about Pixel for a while. They've even confirmed that the, what is it, the Pixel 5a, 6a, so they now some Pixel is going to be coming out to like, well, it's not canceled, it's coming out later mm -hmm. this year. But I was kind of surprised that at their developer conference, they wouldn't talk about the fact that they're working on their own silicon, which I suppose makes sense if we're still, you know, four or five months out from actually anything shipping and being fully announced. But it seems like a good kind of time to go, hey, look, we're Google. You know, we might be spending all this money on these moonshots like the weird, you know, uh, what's the stupid processor called? The, what's it? Know, the uh, quantum, it the quantum, quantum 9000? But I don't remember yeah. the name of it. That part really went over my head big time. <laughs> Well, wouldn't it be a great thing? Oh, yeah, we've got this ultra-powerful quantum processor. Also, we're making our own chips for your phone. Check out the Pixel later this year. Like, It seems like that would be like the smart move. Mm -hmm. But we do have some great Pixel 6 rumors. And by rumors, I mean we have some really actually nice-looking renders. Have you seen these renders? Oh, so you've tipped your hand. Yeah, I've seen them. So you think that this looks nice, huh? I am team. I think this looks good. I actually like it's unique. So if you haven't seen it, we'll have a link in the in the show notes. It is, I think, about as polarizing as it gets. It is pretty much 50-50 to people who absolutely hate it and absolutely love it. And I am certainly in the I think it actually looks really quite good camp. I tell you what this reminds me of. It reminds me of like old Sony design. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I can get behind that. I like it by the way. I was I was burying that part until I said what I wanted okay. to say. Okay. I didn't think it was going to go that way. <laughs> I do really like it because it's different. I like that it's got a two-tone color to it. I like that, like the orange, and it's kind of it, this. It has this weird old-fashioned effect, mm -hmm. which I can't mm -hmm. really understand why. But I think it's like the mixture of the colors and then the like kind of chromey-looking uh, middle piece. So what I, say, I think those renders look cool. Uh, basically, the thing I, I expect people are really bumping on is the camera array is full width of the back and it mm. is a large protrusion. You know, like almost maybe 75% of the width of the, the thickness of the phone itself based on what how these images look, right? Yeah. That's going to be tr tricky. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so there's a few things here. First of all, on the just before we totally move away from the looks, I do appreciate it's almost like a 50s aesthetic. It's got that kind of not only the, the pastel colors, but mm -hmm. the way that it kind of comes together. It's 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 a nice look. So that's just so, sort of so so I mean like that if it really has that kind of vibe of like old tech, right? Like, mm -hmm. And so like I think of Sony, because Sony would be like, you know, they were the best at design back then. So it's kind yeah. of got that feel to me. Like, you know, like that um that record player you've got the yes. the one that stands up. Yep, that's the, that's the kind of design that I'm reminded of. Absolutely, it, it's it's a cool look, and I feel like the Pixel. I know that I mean I really like the way the Pixel Five feels, but it makes sense. You know, they're trying to really get themselves out there. Not that many people even know what a Pixel is. This is a phone where you pull it out, people are like. What the? Well, what, what is that? What yeah. is that, right? The cameras, though, I am really excited about. I know most people are just talking about, oh, my God, it's ugly or it's great. But, like, not only are we seeing a new variety of cameras, right? So it seems like there's a smaller pixel with two cameras and the larger model, which will have three, which, great, sweet. I'm glad they're actually seemingly getting on board with the telephoto and the ultra-wide and the standard. But I think this big camera bump, I mean, sure, it's a design aesthetic, but if it is as thick as these rumors are kind of making it out to be, they finally are updating 
the cameras themselves and the sensors, right? Because how many times have we talked about how the Pixel 5 is the same camera as the Pixel 4, same as the Pixel 3, and the big one Pixel 2. has three cameras, mm-hmm. which they haven't so, done, have they? Uh, no, because they were single camera and then they brought out a telephoto and then they changed their mind and they brought out a ultra wide, ultra wide yeah. instead. But yeah, this will be the first time that it seems like it's the full package and based on the size of that that sort of camera bump, I would assume that we're getting a pretty decent telephoto because you can fit some pretty thick optics there. And I would like to think that there's going to be a much larger, much more modern sensor for ultra wide, but especially for the main sensor, which really is all that they need because their processing has always been amazing. The problem is they've just been left behind by their hardware just being years out of date. This is a bold move, though. So, like, the way that I look at this is they did a great job for years with the one sensor that they use, right? And then it's mm-hmm. got to the point where they lost that edge and now people yep. criticize them for not upgrading the sensor, right? So now they upgrade the sensors and in doing so make a very bold design choice on the phone, which it's not good, right? Like, we'd all prefer the phone not to do that. Like, it looks nice, Mm. but we'd all prefer if the phone didn't have this, like, huge protrusion on the back. So if you change the... If you focus so much of your design around the fact that you need all that space on the back and you are expected to do something good with photography, it's going to have to be really good yeah. Right? It's going to have to like blow the iPhone out of the water like it used to for I think for it to be accepted. And that is a <laughs> it's quite a goal, right? Like it, if they end up doing this and it's like as good or just slightly better than whatever the iPhone is at that year, they're going to look silly, right? Yeah, I mean yeah, it's tough. I I don't think it's possible at this moment in time to make a massive leap over the current, you know, the the S21 line, the current iPhones and whatnot. Like, computational photography, what they did with that first, especially the second generation of Pixel, that was such a massive leap over what anyone else is doing. As far as I'm aware, there's no other, like, huge leap in technology that is, you know, waiting in the wings that Google has cooked up that's just going to be instantly better, right? Like, I do think it's going to be a thing where this will be better, we will have better sensors. It will be a marginal step up. But I don't think we're going to see these crazy, like, oh, my God, the iPhone looks terrible. Look at the Pixel. Like, uh, So to me, it seems like it's more of an aesthetic choice. And I, this just screams, if the phone really does look like this, this just screams, hey, pay attention to me. Google, I have a Google phone. It's super different. It's super unique. And people are either going to like it or they're going to hate it, right? But I don't think anyone is going to see you pull this out of your pocket and go, what is that, right? That, that's going to be absolutely everyone is going to pay attention to it because it looks so different. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad strategy, right? Google needs people to finally pay attention to the Pixel. They sell them. They're they're okay. Yes. But like no one really buys Pixels and they certainly don't have the mind share of a Samsung or of an Apple device. And I think if this is their play to not only improve the cameras, but also to make the phone super distinctive. And honestly, I... I very okay. Well, we'll stick with distinctive because obviously it's a it's a divisive thing. But to me, I think it's something that looks like absolutely no other phone out there. And if they can combine that with better cameras and a real reason for it to look different, I'm all for it. Before we leave, let me tell you about another show on Relay FM. Material host Andy Anako and Florence Ion are veteran technology journalists with plenty to say about what's going on at Google. 
Follow Google's journey with them at relay.fm slash material or search for material wherever you get your podcasts.